All right, we'll turn to Philippians 3, verses 12 to 21. I didn't remember to announce that at the beginning, but hopefully you saw it there on the screen somewhere. So Philippians 3, 12 to 21, we're going to dive right into the text here. And uh, I want to speak this morning on the subject of obtaining the heavenly prize. That's the title of the message, obtaining the heavenly prize. And so let's stand together for the reading of the scriptures as we give careful attention to what God has to say in them. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their, they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables us, uh, enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you as always for your word, that it is truth and life to your people whom you have given ears to hear and hearts to understand by the power of your spirit. And it is even in the reading of the scriptures, in the preaching of the scriptures, that the power of your spirit makes those words come to life. And you open us up to receive what you have for us in them. And you know what it is we need to hear, how it is we need to be challenged and changed, encouraged and built up. And so, Lord, with all of that, we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and for our good always. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Uh, well, in the previous passage, if you were here with us last week, you remember Paul had said whatever self-righteousness and achievement and reputation and any of that that he had, that he considered spiritual assets, he, he now considered loss or losses. The, the, the credits were moved to the debit column, so to speak, for the sake of Christ that he might attain the resurrection from the dead, it says at the end of those passages. Um, th th those who are in Christ have a, a glorious heavenly prize awaiting us. And here in, in this passage that we just read, he tells us uh, how it is that we obtain that heavenly prize or what it is that's involved in obtaining that uh, heavenly prize. And we do that by, number one, pressing on. Number two, walking out. Number three, looking up. I've, I've 
sort of organize it under those headings. Uh, so let's look first at what it looks like to, to always be pressing on. Uh, verses 12 to 16 remind us here there's an already and not yet uh, aspect to our salvation as believers. You may have heard that language used before, but an already and not yet. There's something that we have not yet attained. And that's how he begins verse 12 there. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We've not yet attained at least two things or two things of particular note and significance here. One is the resurrection of the dead. He had mentioned this in verse 11, that all, all of that and you know, that he's counted as loss. He did for the sake of Christ that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings um, and become like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained it, he says. I've not yet attained the resurrection of the dead. And we've not yet been made perfect. Uh, and he says that here, not that I've already obtained this or I am already perfect. You know, this is the way a mature Christian really ought to think. In fact, he says that later, let, let them, those who are mature think this way. What way is that? Well, that I haven't already arrived. I'm not finished. He's not finished with me. Um, that, even, that even as somebody grows in their understanding, uh, in their purity, in their Christ-likeness, what they know most of all is all that they are not, not what they are, uh, rather than pretending to be more than they are. Uh, he knows that there's something we've not yet attained, but then there's also something he says we have attained. So there's an already and a not yet. The already of that is, is referenced in a real passing way um, in verse 16. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So that could be a little bit confusing if you just read through this and sort of in passing and you go, well, not that I've already attained it, but I've attained it. What are you talking about? Well, there's something that we have not attained. We have, we have not yet um, attained the resurrection of the dead and we're not made perfect yet. Th you know, th this is not the version of me that I aspire to be. Like, I am not in the flesh going to be all that God intends for me to be. It's not the best version of you that we're aiming for. It is a whole different version of you with a whole new body, a whole transformed existence, a completion and a resurrected body. But there is something that we've already attained, and he says, let us hold to that. He doesn't say outright what that is, but here's what we know. First of all, it says in verse 12 that Christ has made me his own. That, that, that whatever I have, it is because Christ has secured it for me and that it is found in him. That, that by being joined to him, I have and have attained all that he has, has secured. Um, that would include, maybe most notably, or most obviously, forgiveness of sins and acceptance by God. That distance from him has been closed. Um, that estrangement from our Father has been reconciled, and we now have restored relationship 
with God. And I've attained a way of living that matches the message that I proclaim. That was one of the sermons from the earlier part of Philippians in chapter one. Let your, uh, live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. You may remember that. Or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that's what, part of what I've attained. Not only I've heard the good news, I've believed it, um, I've responded to it and so received the forgiveness that's in that, but then I have uh, attained a way of living uh, that matches that good news that I've heard and believed and proclaimed. So I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. You may, you may have that experience all the time, uh, meeting somebody at a restaurant or whatever, and you get there and you don't see them and call and say, uh, hey, I'm looking for your car, don't see your car, don't see you, are you here yet? No, I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. <laughs> that, that's sort of a summary of the Christian life. Uh, and the more, again, the more we grow in our understanding and our uh, maturity, the more we would say, I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. We get there by pressing on. And that's, of course, sort of the key phrase that I've zeroed in on in this passage. He uses that twice in verses 12 and then in uh, 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus in verse 14. This word press on can also mean pursue or persecute. I found this interesting to think about the sort of uh, wordplay. It's not really wordplay necessarily, but, but just the sort of... Um, varieties of meanings contained in that word because most often this word as it's used in the new testament is used to mean persecute or persecuted blessed are those who are persecuted for example uh, bless those who persecute you we, we maybe remember phrases like that in the in the bible and it's an interesting word relationship because you think about persecution is in a, a manner of speaking a sort of uh, pressing of adversity in on a person almost relentlessly uh, and, and and we would we think of being under pressure in in uh, in times of adversity right that persecution presses adversity on somebody and what we're called to do is to sort of press back against it and to press through it we may live lives at times where we we face adversities and we're pressing against and we feel like it's not budging and maybe it's not uh, but the call to us is to continue pressing, that we, that we press on um, as relentlessly as we feel like it's pressing on us. And not in the way of retaliation against people who would be behind some of the adversity we face, um, not in the way of returning evil for evil or hostility for hostility, but again, just in pursuing that prize as relentlessly as challenges and struggles seem uh, to face and pursue us. The truth is, the Christian life is a struggle, and even if our circumstances are, are pretty cushy at times, and again, for many of us in the world we live in, they are cushy, and we're, we don't face real persecution for being Christians, and, and, and by comparison, we don't, we don't face a lot of circumstantial kind of hardship like lots of other folks know. But at the very least, the Christian life uh, contains and, and consists of struggle against sin. For the person who is really growing in their faith, we wrestle against 
sin. It is a struggle, and Hebrews refers to it in precisely those terms. And so the, 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 for the followers of Jesus, the heavenly prize is ours. Christ has made it ours, but it lies on the other side of the struggles of this present life and of just the Christian experience, and we have to press on to obtain it. And there's a tension to that, isn't it? Um, there's a tension there in the sense that, okay, so is it mine? Like, is it already mine? Has Christ really made something mine? Does, does that belong to me? Is it secure and a sure thing? Or do I have to make it mine? Well, the answer is yes. It is both of those things. And the Bible very clearly speaks of it that way, even though that's not all that clear in our own, own head. There's a tension there. One of the most vivid biblical examples of this uh, I think is in the Old Testament accounts of the people of Israel occupying the promised land. Because from the time he called out Abram uh, to make a people from him, he calls him out of Ur to, to, to go where he would send him. And he tells him he's going to give them this land. And then he tells his descendants that down through the generations, right on down to Joshua. And in the opening chapters of Joshua, when the people are getting ready to go in to occupy the land, he says over and over and over, God says to him, uh, I will give you this land. This is the land that I've given you. And he says it in those terms over and over and over. And then it comes uh, to chapter six or seven and he says, take the land. Oh, wait, what? I thought you were giving it to me. <laughs> he did give it to him, but they had to take it. And that's exactly the sort of tension uh, that we feel in passages like this, where there is something completed and certain and secure about our salvation and what Christ has done for us. And yet there is something we must persist in and persevere in to lay hold of what awaits us and the end of what it is that he has really secured for us in final terms. We, it, we must take what has been given, pressing on to make it our own. Well, the, the, the second thing is uh, we're to be, in, in, in seeking to obtain that heavenly prize, we're to be walking out, not only pressing on, but walking out. That's a little bit of a uh, clunky way of, of maybe saying this, but uh, even though Paul says he's not yet perfect, that he's not a, a picture of sort of the end goal of the Christian life. You know, you couldn't put him on the poster and say, this is ultimately what you're, you're going to become. He says in verse 17, even though he's acknowledged, not that I've attained this yet, and I'm not been, I've not been made perfect, but he says in verse 17, join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he says, let me show you the way the gospel changes how you should live. And, and do what I do and follow others who do what I do. This is exactly the message here. Imitate me, keep your eye on those who walk according to the example that they've seen in us. And so the concern here in, in these few verses is whether we're walking out what we say we believe. Um, you could say that, it, that this, 
this really sets in front of every believer the goal of becoming someone who is worthy of imitation. And then inviting somebody into our lives for whom we can model and teach what it means to live for Christ. Let me say that again, uh, because that's not only really, really important right now, but a theme that's going to ring uh, in a lot of what you hear in, uh, in the months ahead, I think here. But the, the, the goal for every believer is to become someone uh, who is worthy of imitation. You might be sitting there right now thinking that I'm not there. But, but this is exactly the exhortation that people, this is not just Paul who's, who's saying imitate, he's not just saying imitate me, but, but also look at the example of those who have followed our example. Imitate them, that by implication. We're to become somebody who's worthy of imitation and then invite others into our lives for whom we can teach and model what it looks like, what it means to live for Christ. So, you know, this is, this is something worth uh, sort of meditating on because um, when you have somebody in your life a whole lot more who's watching you, you know if you've raised children what this is like. Uh, you know, you do and say things and, uh, oh, you need to stop doing and saying that because the child will say it right after you or do it right after you and those kinds of things. When you do that in a discipling sort of relationship, something similar is true. See, what, what, what many Christians do, what many professing Christians do, is they can come on Sunday morning and put on a happy face, right? Dress the Christian part, and they can hold it together for an hour while, while they're there. And then by the time they get home, all the real them, the real me is so pent up, you know, I just got to go kick the cat or something just to sort of let, let it out. It's like, you know, where we, you, you know, you're holding in your, sucking in your gut to take a picture or whatever. Yeah. Uh, okay, everybody say cheese and whatever. And you can look like upright and all, whatever for just a few seconds while they snap a picture. And then, oh, you know, and, and so we, we, we really can go along faking a Christian life like that for quite a good while if all we got to do is hold it together for one hour. What you find, though, is if you invite somebody into your life for whom you're trying to model what it looks like to follow Christ. You'll find out, again, to sort of extend the metaphor, you can't keep your gut sucked in that long. You'll really find out what the, what the weaknesses are in your very person, what you need to bring before the Lord and say, God, make me what I am not. Well, see, that's a good thing for you. And it's a good thing for other people. Uh, that you're going to model the Christian life for. That's, that's what we're called to. And, and, and again, maybe we would walk away uh, with, with this sort of challenge in our hip pocket that if we wouldn't consider ourselves somebody worthy of imitation, if we're not one of those people who have followed the example of the apostles and of um, others in our own lives who have modeled the Christian life for us, if we're not one of those people right now who could say, imitate me, what would, it, what would be involved in becoming a person worthy of imitation? That ought to become a goal of every one of us. And we don't get a description here of exactly what that is, but we do get a description of what it's not in verses 18 and 19. He says, uh, many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies 
of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's a sobering reminder once again that in the community, in the Christian community, among us as the people of God, there are people who are actually enemies of the cross. We, we ought to be just uh, frightened almost by that kind of statement sobered at least, arrested by it, enemies of the cross, who wouldn't think of themselves that way? Uh, but, but what's the description of them? Whether God is their belly and they have their minds set on earthly things. It's such a perfect metaphor for worldly appetites, isn't it? The belly, that their God is their belly. The only thing that they really serve is their own appetites. And we know what it's like to, ha to have a growing appetite for other things that would, that would just seem to be gratifying or satisfy satisfying, that we want to indulge them and so on. And yet, the other thing we know about our belly is it's never satisfied. Uh, it was particularly humorous to me, knowing I was going to be recording this sermon today, that I woke up and my stomach was growling before I got out of the bed. My, my, my it was like my stomach was a little child sitting by the bed and saw my eyes pop open and said, oh, I'm glad you're awake. Well, my belly was ready to be fed again, and that's how it is for all of us. It's never satisfied. And, and that's what worldly desires are like. That's why I said it's just a perfect metaphor for the pursuit of those desires. It wants to be indulged, but it's never satisfied. And, uh, and those who set their minds on earthly things like that are enemies of the cross. It's, it's a bit hard language. Um, but but here's, here's the implication of that. That Christ didn't die to open up opportunities for us to satisfy all of our worldly fleshly desires. He didn't die for us to achieve our goals and our dreams, although our goals and dreams might certainly be a part of his plan. And, and by pursuing them and achieving them, we might do good for a lot of other people. I'm not really saying anything for or against uh, those in particular. But the point is that he didn't die for that. And that is not what this text is talking about, by the way. Sometimes the previous passage here, the forgetting what lies behind and looking to what lies ahead and pressing on. People use this to mean, oh, you know, you've had some setbacks and failures or whatever. But hey, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and press on and pursue your goals. Well, again, that actually may be good advice uh, in life. It just has nothing to do with what this passage is about. It's about the very opposite of that. Uh, not in pursuit of any kind of earthly concerns or considerations or things. It is uh, a pursuit of heavenly things. So we're, we're to be walking out um, a, a demonstration that we understand the gospel that we've received, believed, and, and proclaimed, and walking it out in a way that we become somebody worthy of imitation. Number three, uh, we're to obtain that heavenly prize by looking up. Uh, the, the, the disciple of Jesus in pursuit of the heavenly prize will always have his eyes uh, in a uh, sort of figurative sense looking up in contrast to those who have their minds and appetites set on earthly things. We're not to be people who pursue 
um, pleasure, meaning, and security in uh, you know, money, sex, power, fame, recognition, relationships, systems, and resources, any kind of earthly things. But time and time again, our actions reveal our true affections, don't they? Like, like when we get, when we're afraid, uh, when we just have the freedom to make our own decisions without being pressed by any kind of adversity and that kind of thing, what is it we reach for? For fulfillment, for security, and so on. It is, it is so often earthly things. They occupy our attention and our affections. What we reach for first reveals our love for and confidence in earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, it says here. And our Savior is from heaven. And we always need to be looking up. That we're here as ambassadors of that kingdom. Uh, to, to use sort of a theme that came up um, earlier in Philippians again. Um, but our desires are to be directed onto him. We're pressing on, we're walking out, we're looking up. I want to kind of offer an extended illustration of this that I, I think, I hope will be uh, helpful to sort of attach these concepts to. But an example particularly of the uh, uh, an illustration of the uh, the pressing on and the and the looking up. So in 1969, there were two great human achievements um, that had long been imagined, but had really always been thought impossible. One of those was the first moon landing. Uh, we're quite familiar with that one. It happened in July of 1969. The other was three months prior to that when a man named Robin Knox Johnston became the first person to sail around the world nonstop alone. Uh, it took him 312 days, 10 plus months, on the ocean by himself without stopping anywhere. You you maybe can appreciate why people thought that was impossible <laughs> because not only were there surely to be adverse uh, weather conditions, I mean, without question there would be, um, because of the immense challenges of handling a boat alone in those conditions for that length of time, but really mostly because of the psychological uh, effects of being isolated for that length of time. People really thought nobody can do that <laughs> for that long. Even if, they, even if they're not set back by any of the other challenges, if they never have a chance to stop and repair their boat for anything that gets broken, if they never have a chance to stop and have human contact with anybody else, they'll go mad. Well, in 1968, a British newspaper created a contest around this idea uh, had a cash prize of 5,000 pounds to the person who could do that the fastest. They would start within a window of time of a few months, um, and there'd be some acknowledgement of whoever was first and fastest. Robin Knox Johnson was not favored to win. He had the shortest boat at 32 feet, one that he built himself. Um, but uh, he endured great adversities in order to finish that race. And so, uh, again, as just sort of an illustration of pressing on toward that prize, 
In the first 10 days in the Southern Ocean, which would have been down as he, as he got around the, um, the uh, Cape of Africa, first 10 days in the Southern Ocean, he faced six gales. Six gales in 10 days. Winds of, think, 40, 50 mile an hour winds. That's what we see sometimes here when we get uh, hurricanes that sort of skirt by or whatever. A tropical storm, maybe, if we're hit dead on. Six of those in 10 days, including a total knockdown of his boat that caused salt water to get into his freshwater supply. He had the whole rest of his journey with his freshwater contaminated. Fortunately, he had his, the, the hull of his boat so uh, stocked with uh, canned goods, he had to climb over them because uh, he had so many of them weighing down the boat. But they included a really healthy uh, stock of canned beer and that was his liquid for uh he had to ration it for really the remainder of the trip he had a, he had a whole lot farther to go than he had come at that point already had reason enough to turn around and stop he didn't do it but uh he at one point he developed a leak in the hull for several days his boat was leaking he knew he had to dive down beneath it below to uh, repair the leak but there was, he was in shark-infested waters and there was one aggravating, stubborn shark just hanging around his boat for days. He ended up having to shoot the shark, uh, creating a left, enough time or distance so maybe the blood there wouldn't attract other sharks so that he could dive in the water, repair the leak, and keep on going. Maybe the worst adversity of all uh, was when he faced some fierce storms that produced just enormous waves, some he estimated to be as high as like 80 feet in a 32-foot boat. At one point, he was up on deck. He saw a wave that he knew was going to swamp the boat. And it's one of these in a dark storm uh, where you, you can't see very far in the distance anyway. And suddenly, he sees an enormous wall of wave that is getting ready to overtake his boat. He doesn't have time to get down below uh, and take, you know, sort of refuge down in the cabin. And so what does he do? He climbs up the mast. Um, counterintuitive in so many ways <laughs> as you might imagine he climbed up the mast he watched the wave come over his boat and totally swamp it he had no idea how high that was going to come totally swamped his boat he is, is, is hanging on to one mast looking at the other mast on his boat and that's the only thing in sight for 1500 miles in any direction his boat is completely underwater he cannot see the rest of his boat and in just a little while, the boat pops back up out of the water because that's how they're made to do. And uh, he ends up uh, doing some work, as you might imagine, to get himself back underway. But that would, that would defy almost every human instinct. I, I, think, I think you know this is probably true. Now, for an experienced sailor, obviously, there are maybe other instincts. But I think the average human instinct would be to grab something down below, not something up higher. Because that would feel so terribly insecure. It's the smallest thing around you. <laughs> and somehow it feels most vulnerable to be separated from any other mass. But it was actually the one place where there was safety was to go higher, uh, not to reach for things below. To reach for things above and not things below. And of course, that's part of what, what I'm intending by the metaphor.
that he was saved by letting go of things below and reaching for things above. You know, uh, again, that our instinct, as I said earlier, our, our impulse, our reaction much of the time in a spiritual sense, when we are distressed, when we face adversity, when we're in fear, and so on, that we reach for things below. That's our impulse to do. Even right now, this week, while people are feeling really unnerved um, by the uncertainty surrounding uh, the election, where at, at the time, at least in this recording, counting still going on, uh, I think there'll probably be uncertainty for some time, which I said in a message a couple of weeks ago, we ought to expect. So hopefully nobody ought to be surprised or distressed by that. Uh, we had fair warning of the fact. But the point is, when we're in these kinds of situations, we find ourselves reaching for security in earthly things. And maybe you feel like, uh, where you, you might not want to say it this way, but that your sense of security depends upon the outcome of the election. And some people would say that it doesn't, but I can just about guarantee come January, they'll already be campaigning for the next election. <laughs> they'll already be uh, on board with whatever the message is going to be for the midterm elections in 2022 because they find a great deal of security in human systems and resources and so forth. But we're not to be people who reach for and set our minds on earthly things, but on things above. Well, Robin Knox Johnson was not only the first person uh, to finish that race, he was the only one to finish. Of nine people that started, several withdrew because of physical um, or emotional reasons that they were just unable to endure. Uh, one literally went insane and committed suicide. Um, there was one who may have been the first one to finish the race, probably was in the position to pass it. He just grew disillusioned with the whole thing and decided not to finish. He changed course. He sailed halfway around the world again. <laughs> and uh, I think he went to Tahiti or somewhere. But um, he, he went to, to totally a different port anyway. One who probably would have been the fastest to finish went to sleep during a storm not far from. He had made it through the worst part of the trip. Uh, he was not very far from England. He went to sleep during the storm and awoke to the sound of his hull breaking apart. And he was able to uh, make a distress call and get rescued before his boat sank to the bottom of the ocean. Well, you can could, you could sort of carry all of, you can, you can sort of play out all of those little metaphors of what it looks like not to press on. Now, all the reasons why it may feel like this is never going to end, well, I'm never going to get there, it's not worth it. What I thought was worth sacrificing isn't, I just don't have the will um, or the resolve or the real deep conviction and all of those kinds of things. Life, the Christian life, will be filled and colored with all kinds of reasons to give up or just to sit as if we're waiting at the bus stop for Christ to come pick us up. Like there's nothing more to do. There's nothing to persevere through. We, we uh, have sort of bought our ticket to heaven and we're just waiting for the ride there. 
Uh, the Bible doesn't affirm that at all. It doesn't affirm that at all in the life of a believer. Uh, we're to be pressing on. We're to be walking out of faith that's worthy of imitation. We're to be looking up with our minds not set on earthly things. Uh, models of the truth that we've believed, that we've uh, embodied and received, and that we proclaim. And so we pray that he'll make that true of us, of you and me, and uh, that we'll see our church and our community even transformed um, by, by these simple truths of, of walking out what we profess and blessing other people by it. Well, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, these reminders, God, that there is something certain that you have done for us through Christ, that he made us his very own, um, that he secured for us in him all that we long for, that that's already done and it is already sure. We thank you, though, Lord, for the reminder that it is only those who continue walking into that to lay hold of that which Christ has laid hold for us. It's only those who press on and who walk out their faith and who continue looking up who will actually um, receive and enter into that fullness. And so, Lord, would you uh, quicken us to show us what it is that we need to do, how it is that we need to respond. Lord, would you show us what are those earthly things we have our minds set upon? What are those fleshly appetites uh, that really do motivate us and have our attention most of the time. Lord, would you convict us about the ways in which we are those kinds of Christians who can show up uh, for a, a short period of time around other believers and look the part of a Christian as if we're sort of holding our gut in for a short time. And the truth is, there may even be among us enemies of the cross because we're really people of this earth. Lord, would you convict us as we need to be convicted and call us to the place of action, of repentance, of obedience to you. We ask you to use this time, even now, to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.